And our scripture lesson tonight comes at the conclusion of the gospel, the good news according to St. Luke. Let's share in God's good news together. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. With God, there are no nobodies. With God, there are no nobodies. Will you say that with me? With God, there are no nobodies. And in the beginning of the good news, according to Luke, God proves this by coming to the world, not as a king, not up on Herod's mountain, but in a dark cave in Bethlehem. He grows up in a nowhere town called Nazareth, wasn't even on the map, was born to a peasant girl in a nowhere place. She might have been 12, 13 years old when she got pregnant, probably no more than 14 when she bore Jesus and laid him in an animal trough, gathered around the shepherds, the night shift workers of that time. We find that God even models in God's own self that where God is, there are no nobodies. And at the end of the good news, according to Luke, we find Jesus on the cross with a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left. And even in that worst of cases, the worst torture the world has ever known, what we find is that one of the criminals derides him, the other decides to follow him, decides that he will ask him if he could be with him in paradise. And Jesus says, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. And what we find is that if Jesus can take a criminal on a cross in the last moments of life and flip that around, if he can say, Father, forgive them to the very people putting nails in his hands and in his feet and a crown on his head and hurling insults at him, if he can forgive them, he can forgive you. He can forgive us. You see, in these last moments of Jesus' life on earth before the resurrection, we find that anybody, truly anybody, anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. Anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. Because what God sees is the person that you can be, not the person you have been. And that's great news for us, isn't it? God's no, not so concerned about your past, not even really all that concerned about your present. He looks at the person you can be, not the person you have been. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out as we come to the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke. It's a beautiful, beautiful book of the Bible. And what we find is that in Luke 24, the last chapter, in verse 1, we find that Jesus has died. Jesus died at roughly 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, which means that that's very, very close to sundown, very close to the Sabbath day where they can do no work at all. And so they are in this hurried pace to get Jesus down off of the cross to put him in strips of cloth to get him prepared for burial, to place him in a tomb. They have to get to Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea comes and, and the women are with him and they place Jesus in the tomb, but the sun starts to go down and they have to stop their work before they can even put on the spices and the ointment. They have to stop. They'll have to come back for him another day. And because they're so concerned that uh, someone might come and take him or grave robbers or any of those sorts of things, there is a huge stone that is rolled in front of the tomb. You see, the women had to come back to finish their burial work. And so in Luke 24, verse 1, it says this. 
On the first day of the week, they had to wait some 40 hours. So at early dawn, they come to the tomb. And they take those spices that they had prepared that they were ready to use earlier, but they didn't have time. And can you imagine for just a moment what a gruesome task that would be? To have to come back to the bloodied and bruised, tortured body of Jesus 40 hours post-mortem. This is the task that the women had come to do. And when they come to the tomb in verses 2 and 3, uh, this is what they find. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. It was sort of their worst fear realized. He was gone. They were devastated. So as they come, it may have looked something like this. I would remind you that the, the ground is very, very rocky. And so it was a tomb that was cut out of rock. And there would be the groove in front of the tomb. Uh, most of the time, they, they would have the, the stone up high so that you could roll it into place very easily. But it was very difficult, maybe three, four, five men, to push that huge stone up and away from the tomb. So all we know from the scriptures in verses 2 and 3 is that they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, let me ask you, why was the stone rolled away? Why was it rolled away from the tomb? Was it so that Jesus could get out? Like he'd knocked and people were waiting and they moved it so Jesus could go. He was just, you know, faking his death. He'd sort of swooned, perhaps. People said that. Other people said that he was never placed in there at all. That he had gone some other place and they were hiding the body. But friends, for more than 2,000 years, they've never found the bones of Jesus. They've never found him anywhere. And they have looked for him pretty much every day since this event happened. More than 2,000 years. No, the, the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. I believe with all my heart the reason the stone was rolled away is so the women could get in. The women needed to come in and see that he wasn't there. He was gone. He was raised just as he had said. And Luke says that they don't understand what is going on at all. They have come. They are tortured in their souls. They have seen him die. They have tried to bury him once. They ran out of time. They come back to finish their job and he is gone. In verses 4 and 5 it says this. While they were perplexed about this, they didn't know what to do. Suddenly two men... Angels, messengers of God, in dazzling clothes, stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? It's a great question. Why do you look for Jesus? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's alive. He's not here, but is risen. Um, The Greek might better be translated, he has been raised. He has been raised. God has already lifted him up. He is raised. But you see, the women were terrified. They didn't know what to do with this news. Maybe you've been in that spot. Can you remember in your life, these times in your life, where something really wonderful was happening and you just could not conceive it, you just could not hold on to it? You were terrified. These moments sort of like childbirth. Something really beautiful and miraculous is happening, but it's it's pretty scary. It's terrifying. It's all new to you. The stone was rolled away. The women come in and they don't understand. And the angels ask them, why do you look for the living among the dead? It's a great question. Many of us still look for Jesus among the dead. We don't mean to, but, but we do. We think of Jesus as a hero, as someone who did great things back then. You know, healings that happened back then and over at that time, not today. And we think of Jesus as a hero. We think of him as, as, as being among the dead, not alive. Others think of Jesus among the dead because he's a great pattern for life. You'll hear people say this, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's a good guy. And, and I should pattern my life. We should all pattern our life after Jesus. The problem is you can't do it. No one can live the life that Jesus lived. 
on our own. I can remember, those of you who know me well, you know that my handwriting is atrocious. I mean, it's just horrible. I'll write you, many, I've written many of you thank you notes, uh, and, you, and it just looks like a blob to you. But just know it, it, I mean well when I write to you. And I remember in grammar school when I was beginning to write, they, they would put these things up there, and, and, and you see the little arrows like, oh, well, you're supposed to swoop up here, or turn there, or do this or do that. And I would try to write whatever they wanted me to write. I couldn't do it. And they said, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. Here, we'll, we'll show you. And they gave me a pattern. They said, A's go like this, and B's like that, and S is like this, and you, you learn to print first, and then they switch it on you. They make you do cursive, and, and then you have these hybrids and all sorts of things. And, and, you know, I just, I couldn't, I would look at it, and I would see the way it was supposed to go, and I just couldn't get my hands to do that, to look like that. I, I just couldn't seem to do it, and... And as much as I tried, I had the pattern, I knew what I was supposed to do, but it just never quite looked like that. I mean, do you see that Z down there? Does that, I mean, what is that? Looks like a two. I mean, craziness. And so finally, ultimately, I had a second grade teacher, Mrs. Green. She was amazing. And she took my hand and her hand. And she would not just tell me to be better. She took my hand and moved my hand with her hand, and some of those letters began to stake shape. You see, for Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, He has to live in us. We have to yield our hands to His hands, have His hands placed over our, our hands, have His heart placed over our heart, His mind on our mind, our lives under His control, under His life. Not in a hard way, but so that we can be free to do the things we could never do without Him. Never do without Him. He's not just a pattern. He's not just a hero. And quite frankly, he's not even just a teacher. He's more than that. He's the savior of the world. Changed everything on the planet. And then the angels said this to the women. Remember. That's your next blank day. Remember. Remember how he told you. Yes, all these things that we need in life, Jesus has already told us. That he is with us, that he loves us, that he's forgiven us. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man, a name for himself, must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Yes, it was the third day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third day. Yes, remember, remember, remember what Jesus says is true. And the story continues in verses 8 and 9. It says that they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, that's easy enough to read, but who's all the rest? Who are these people? Who are all the rest? We know about the disciples. Yes, there's James and John and Peter and Bartholomew. And we know them, but who are all the rest? Well, you see, Jesus was doing something amazing here when he was choosing women to be the first bearers of the risen Lord. To be the first bearers of kingdom news. If you go all the way back in Luke to chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, you find that there are the twelve, and then there's some women, and then there are many others who provided for them out of their resources. You see, among these was Mary. Mary Magdalene. She had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Seven demons even had gone out of her. And there was also Joanna, and she was married to Herod Steward. And then there's Susanna and many others. And, and there are also some other women that are mentioned. The mother of Jesus, and there's the mother of James, and there's the mother of the sons of Zebedee. You see, all these women had lots and lots of ways to gain status in the world by being married or by having children. 
But that certainly was not the case for Mary of Magdala. I would remind you that in the time of Jesus, the law in Rome stated that a father was required to raise all healthy male children. It was a male-dominated culture, way beyond what we see today. So a father was required to raise all male children, but only the firstborn female. Any others were disposable in that day. It was common practice to leave baby girls outside to die in what they called exposure. And one Greek poet 300 years earlier had written this, Everyone raises a son, even if he's poor, but he exposes a daughter, even if he is rich. And in the city of Delphi, out of 600 known families, only six of them, only 1%, only six of those families raised more than one daughter. The other 99% of baby girls were apparently abandoned to die. In Jesus' day, to be a girl or a woman in that culture meant you were a nobody. Expendable. Until Jesus. Until Jesus, two of the most powerful words you could ever say or hear. Until Jesus, women were rarely mentioned. Until Jesus, women were murdered and stoned to death by the very men that had chosen to have sex with them. Until Jesus, disciples of a rabbi were all men. Until Jesus, there were somebodies and nobodies. But then in chapter 8, we find Jesus offered women a new community. Scandalously, Jesus had women and men travel and study and learn and do ministry together, unheard of. Imagine what kind of rumors flew around. Well, quite frankly, it's the same kind of rumors that fly around today when women who travel for business with their male colleagues. Only in Jesus' day, those rumors could get you killed. Yet the Bible teaches us that it was these courageous women, these women who were paying the bills, it was their resources And yes, it included Joanna, whose husband worked for King Herod as a steward. Yes, it's the same Herod that was trying to kill Jesus. Now that's courage. Amazing courage shown both by Joanna and by Jesus. And what is true then is still true today. True community, amazing inclusivity of all people, it requires courage. Real courage to say everyone is welcome. Now, when it came to Mary Magdalene, she was a nobody among nobodies. She was the nobody's nobody, so to speak. In the ancient world, a woman's highest calling was to bear children, particularly male children. And in ancient Sparta, a mother who gave birth to a son would receive twice the food rations of a mother who gave birth to a daughter. Yet here is Mary, who has no male child, no children at all. Mary is not even married. And friends... The way they thought of her, what she wasn't right in the head. I mean, this was somebody that had seven demons cast out of her. And doctors in that day, when they couldn't figure out what was going on with someone, particularly with mental illness or depression or bipolar, multiple personality disorder, schizophrenia, or other sort of difficult physical maladies like epilepsy, the person was said to have a demon representing each malady that kept someone from being healthy. Now, Mary, according to the scripture, had issues. She had at least seven issues that Jesus had healed and touched and made right. And this is the woman. This woman is the one that Jesus invites to follow him as one of his disciples. It is this Mary of no standing, this Mary with no children, this Mary with no husband that Jesus chooses. He says, I don't care what anybody else says about you. You're somebody to me. You matter to me. Follow me. 
Really, the only good thing you could say about Mary was that she was from the west side of the Sea of Galilee, from a town called Magdala. Now, this was hardly a recommendation any more than the slight of calling Jesus the Savior of the world, just Jesus of nowhere Nazareth. Jesus from Nowheresville. Yet it is this Mary from Magdala that followed Jesus to the cross when all the men were afraid and ran away and were hiding. When the male disciples fled, Mary from Magdala remained steadfast. It is Mary from Magdala that waits for Jesus to be taken down from the cross. It is this nobody Mary that is with Joseph of Arimathea, courageous enough to go back before Pilate and ask for his body, to lie him with strips of cloth in this rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. And it is this Mary of no account that witnesses Jesus being placed in the tomb and how his body was laid. And it is this Mary who was prepared to do the most difficult and gruesome task of coming back to a dead body 40 hours later to treat the corpse with spices and ointment. And if all of this wasn't enough in the Gospel of Luke, according to John, the Gospel of John, Mary is the only person found at the tomb Easter morning. John 20 accounts it like this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, the only one mentioned in John's Gospel, came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in the white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him only to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Called her by name. Mary. And she turned and she said to him, she recognized his voice. She said, teacher, rabbi. Yes, this nobody is the first person to see the risen Lord, the first person to be called by name. This Mary, not quite right Mary, from Magdala. And the Lord calls her first, calls her by name. Now, it was women then in verse 10 of Luke 24, back to the story. It was the women who told this to the apostles. And and this is tricky, isn't it? That that God would choose these women, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles, and and Mary Magdalene, of course. And this is odd because when it came to girls and women, they received little or no education. They were legally classified as children, no matter how old they were or how high their IQ. Therefore, they were always the property of some man. That's just the way it was in Jesus' day. And this is how messed up it was. John Ortberg describes the situation like this. He says it like this. He says, listen, in our world, if your car is damaged, compensation goes to you because you are the owner. And in the ancient world, though, if a woman was violated, the compensation went to her husband or to her father, not her, because the same principle would apply. You see, it was the owner who got compensated. And a woman in Jesus' day could own nothing. Yet in all four Gospels, in all four, the task of being witnesses who proclaim the resurrection is given to women solely. And this is remarkable because in the ancient world, a woman's testimony was generally disregarded completely. And receiving testimony, really receiving testimony from women in that day would be like putting a five-year-old on the witness stand today. Simply disregarded. Yet, this is who God entrusts with the greatest message in the world. 
Because to God, there are no nobodies. Regardless of the reactions of the male disciples, which we will see will not be stellar here in a moment, the fact remains that God chose women to be the first at the crash and the last at the cross. God chooses whom he chooses. So in verse 11, we find what you might expect from the men who had left the cross and were hiding out. These words seemed to them an idle tale, the scripture says, and they did not believe them. Well, of course they didn't believe them. It was Mary from Magdala, the crazy one. They're not believing her or the other women. Of course not. Matter of fact, the Greek for this idle tale is to describe someone who is with fever and really out of their mind. An idle tale. These women. You see, even the greatest blessings in life can fail to bring joy to us unless they are received with gratitude. Let that thing sink in for a minute. Even the greatest blessings can fail to bring joy unless they are received with gratitude. And sometimes we just don't have a context or a construct to put these things in. Have you ever had that day where the things going around you were just, they were confusing. You had never seen it like this. Even if it was a good thing, you just didn't know what to do with it. Because you just, I mean, Jesus had died and they, I mean, let's face it, no one had ever been risen from the dead before in the way that Jesus had. I mean, they'd seen Lazarus, but he died again. This was a whole new deal. Now, when it comes to Easter, let's just say this. Every metaphor fails. Right? There's nothing like the Easter story. It's why every preacher's like, oh my gosh, it's Easter. Right? Because you know the story, and there's nothing like it in all the world. But this week, if you were following on YouTube or on Facebook or any of those things, I, I got a tiny, tiny little glimpse of this lady. Something happened on the Price is Right this week that had never happened before. Uh, uh, take a look to a rather expensive mistake on The Price is Right. A contestant had three chances to pick the right price of that Hyundai Sonata, and this is what happened. 19,849, go ahead, Manuela. Boot, no. Oh! I won it! <laughs> Oops, she wasn't supposed to lift that tab, but win it, she did. Host Drew Carey told the contestant, congratulations. The model just gave you a car. That model, Manuela, enormously embarrassed, but she did not get into trouble for essentially just giving away that vehicle. <laughs> I want that lady if I ever get on the prices right. I mean, what do you do? I mean, you have three chances to win the car. You choose. It's wrong. You get ready for your second choice, and the other lady's just like, hey, here's a car. <laughs> like, do I get to guess number two? It's number two. Right? I mean, she still had two other guesses. Now, now, you see in that moment, did she win the car? I mean, did, she, did she win it? Did she earn the car? Did she win the car? Now, those are different, aren't they? She didn't earn the car, but she did win the car. And was it something that the contestant did? No. It was just a mistake by the model. But she won the car. Now, Jesus was no mistake. But sometimes we, we think, we come to the resurrection, we think, oh, well, that can't be right. We can't be saved. We can't receive this gift of eternal life by something we had nothing to do with. Uh, yeah, you can. More than you can win a car from Manuela. Jesus paid the price for you. He, you, he opened it up. You can receive it. But the thing was, the disciples had no construct for this. They're like, 
What? Well, we know he said so, but what? You, you see the confusion on the lady's face? Like, did I win the car? I want to win the car. I won the car. She's claiming it. I'm winning the car. Right? And, and they did. They gave it to her. And, and we come to something much more important, much more profound, that, that will be for you for all your life. You have already won, not just a car. And it has been done for you, and it's no mistake. No mistake at all. But friends, here, here's the thing. Just because the tomb is empty, that's not the Easter story. There's lots of tombs that are empty. What happens next is why this is so important. If you follow along in Luke 24, what you find is that Jesus now has a new life. He's raised and he can show up wherever he wants to, however he wants to, in any location in the world. And so he shows up on the road to Emmaus and then in just a few other verses, he shows up where the disciples are. So in verses 36 to 43, when Jesus was raised, he didn't return to normal human life. No, but to the life of eternity beyond time. To where he could simply appear wherever he wanted to. So while they're talking about Jesus, Jesus himself stands among them. Poof! He appears and he says, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. I know you're freaked out. We would be. They were startled and terrified. Of course they were. And they thought they were seeing a ghost. So Jesus says to them, why are you frightened? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands. Look at my feet and see that it isn't myself. He still had holes in his hands and his feet, friends. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while in their joy they were disbelieving, they could not believe it. And still wondering, he said to them, have anything here to eat? You know? He'd been with them a long time. Like, I'm hungry. That being raised from the dead, it's hard work. You know? So they gave him a piece of fish. Now this is mundane, isn't it? But this is how Jesus comes to us in the everydayness of life. So they do, they give him a piece of fish. He takes it and he eats it in their presence. And guess what? It doesn't fall through him. He's not a ghost. He's digesting it in his new body. A new body where he can go someplace else if he wants to or reappear to them whenever he likes. Because Jesus' raised is no longer bound by space and time. He is God himself. He is the deity. He has changed the world. Changed the world. Now, the early church had to figure out what did this mean? How, how could this thing? It's not just about the disciples. It's not just about Mary. Now it's about the whole world. It's about you and me and everyone who will ever live. And the early church fathers prayed and studied. And the bishop of Nyssa, Gregory, he came up with what's known as the fishhook theory of atonement. It is my favorite. I love it. And it goes something like this. I think, I think there's Gregory right there. It's an icon of him. He basically said this. You and I and all of us, humanity, we're enslaved to sin. We are, and, and to the devil, by our own free choice. We look at things that are delightful, and, and we have our appetites, and, and we go for it. What we don't see is the long-term effects, right? It's like rent-a-center. Oh, buy this, pay later. Oh, you pay later. All of us fall into that trap sooner or later in some way. And God could free humanity arbitrarily. He could, but this would be to deny God's own justice. And since it was the free choice of humanity to be enslaved, the slave master, even if it is the devil, must receive a payment for the slave, which is us, all of humanity. So what would he accept in exchange for the thing which he held? but something higher and better in the way of ransom. So if, if the powers of darkness already held humanity, the ransom would have to be better than humanity. And so along comes Jesus, this nobody from nowhere, from Nazareth. So the devil sees Jesus, and he sees one who can perform these marvelous miracles, and he can heal the sick, and he can feed thousands from small amounts of food, and he can raise the dead, and, 
The devil looks at this and he decides that it's time for an upgrade. He's going to trade humanity for Jesus, for God's son. So he wants him. So what the devil does and what he doesn't realize is this, is that he's about to walk into a divinely devised deception. You see, there's a hook. It's called the fish hook theory of atonement. You see, the reason this nobody stuff is so important is because at the end of the story, Jesus is the great nobody. God chooses to look like us. God chooses to come to Mary in a cave. God chooses to walk with dust on his feet. God chooses to live at home until he's in his 30s building wood and, and chairs and tables. Watching his little brothers and sisters. A nobody from a nowhere town. And all of this flesh, all of this normal mundane stuff is over and over and over himself as God. Over the deity. Over the hook. Because the deity, being God, is the hook. And all this flesh, all this nobody business is, is the bait around it. And so God says, sure, okay. Well, you know, if, if we're going to trade Jesus, you know, just this, this wonderful, miraculous Jesus man, for all of humanity, we'll do that. And, I mean, it's set. The, the trap is set, isn't it? And the devil, a ravenous fish, is like, chomp you mean i get to kill jesus i'm all about that the darkness comes and it's going to eat jesus this little man who did some neat things that everybody thought was cool he's going to eat him up and kill him and he does and guess what yank because underneath that flesh underneath that everydayness of jesus is the king of kings light of light very god of very god and what you find about light is where there's the tiniest bit of light darkness cannot overcome it so imagine how foolish darkness is to try to eat light. You can't do it. And so while they try to hold him down, boom, light comes out of the darkness. Life comes out of death. It cannot hold him. And so not only does the devil lose humanity, the devil can't hold Jesus either. He loses the whole deal. And God's like, yep, that's what I do. I take good out of evil. I make beauty out of pain. I wring goodness out of the worst things the world can do. That's who God is. Never, ever forget it, friends. God is for you. God is with you. And God is doing something that maybe even the entire world can't see, but he's doing something good for you. He loves you. And so as Jesus is ascending to heaven, he reminds his people to tell all the world of this good news in Luke 24, 45 to 48. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance to turn our lives towards God, no longer away from God or for ourselves, but for him and for him alone. And forgiveness of sins that we are free is to be proclaimed, not just around here, but to all the world. Beginning from Jerusalem, which the disciples did, but now to all the world. It comes to us. For you are witnesses of these things, Jesus says to the disciples. And tonight, you are are witnesses of these things. That God is for you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The early church said it this way. He is risen. And the other people will respond. He is risen indeed. Will you say it with me? He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And now friends it's time for you to write this in your blank. I am a witness to Christ. I am a witness to Christ. Not a dead hero, not a pattern, not a teacher. I'm a witness to Christ alive today in me. I am a witness to Christ alive today in me. 
I am a witness to Christ alive today in me. Will you say that with me? I am a witness alive today in me. Paul reassured the early church, friends, that this cannot be taken from us, that God has done it, and it is done for the ages. So Paul writes this, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the book on Easter. We're an Easter people. This is our story, and we're sticking to it. Death is no longer victor. Death now is merely a comma in the sentence of life. Death is now, C.S. Lewis says, only the prelude to the symphony, only the preface to the great adventure that is before us. He is risen. He is risen indeed.